All right, I'm just, I'm just curious. So uh, tonight after service, uh, so the funeral service, the memorial service for Tommy, which is Debbie's brother, is going to be tomorrow at Prattville Memorial Gardens. At, viewing is going to be from 1 to 2, services at 2. Uh, afterwards, they're going to have a, uh, a meal up here at the church. And so if you'd like to stick around after tonight, we're just going to try to throw up some tables in Fellowship Hall, put some chairs up. That way that's already set up for tomorrow's meal. And uh, that would be most appreciated. So uh, any major pressing uh, prayer requests before we open up with prayer I can pray about? No? Everybody having a okay week last week? No, okay, yeah, all right, all right, well, uh, we will have one more Men's Forge coming up next month in October, and so that's going to be, I think, the 19th, which is the third Thursday, and then we'll take a break until January just because the holiday season's coming up, so, but uh, let me open up a word of prayer, and then we'll be in James chapter 4, James 4, God, I thank you for this evening, Lord, and just, it was great having you know, more visitors today at church and, and learning about the power of passion for us to have. I pray, Lord, that that message from this morning would resonate with us tonight to have the passion to choose things of you over things of the world as we discuss this uh, short passage in the book of James. So I pray that you would just uh, be with us this evening, just guide our discussions, guide our thoughts, and that you'd be pleased and honored, not just in this class, but in every ministry going on this evening as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, last week we were in the beginning parts of the book of James, chapter number 4, and we talked about prayer and the fact that sometimes we receive uh, unanswered prayers simply because we're not asking other times we looked at the fact that sometimes we're asking for things, but the reasons why we're asking is so that we can consume it upon our own lusts, is what uh, James writes and discusses. And so we talked about the infighting that was happening as well with these Christians. We looked at the fact that it's pretty strongly attested to that these are believers. We see it in chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 7. The fact that brethren is referenced 15 times. Beloved brethren is referenced, I believe, three times in five chapters. So I don't believe that there's any, uh, there shouldn't be any argument that he's not talking about believers because it's pretty clear he is. And that's going to be a big emphasis for looking at in chapter 4. So I just want to read the first few pa passages, and then we're going to stop discussing some things. We're going to be in James 4, 4 through 6. And James writes, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be an e a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And so here we get to this particular passage, and it's quite startling in the fact that James goes and he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And the title I chose tonight was Christians and Adultery. You know, kind of provocative, and, and what does that even look like? So what we do understand as far as this passage is concerned is that throughout the Old Testament, we see regularly that God charges Israel with committing 
adultery. Basically committing adultery because of their what's known as spiritual idolatry, putting things above God. They were choosing to put things of the world, things of their preferences in the place of God. If you're curious about what the book of Hosea is and why God had asked Hosea to marry a prostitute who he knew would be unfaithful to him, it's because he was trying to paint a picture to Hosea by his wife Gomer as far as the spiritual idolatry, the adultery that the Israelite people were doing to God himself to sort of paint a picture. And this is what James is saying here. Not much has changed from the Old Testament to here in the New Testament with these believers. And so, first question, you know, I'm thinking, okay, he, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Some translations only have the word adulteresses. But regardless, he calls them out as far as committing adultery. And my question is, why, do you, why does he call them out as committing adultery? And it says right there in the passage, he says, you're committing adultery in the fact that friendship with the world is at enmity with God. And this is what he's alluding to and talking about. And it leads me to a couple of discussion questions. I always want to just bat some things around and just try to get discussion amongst us. The first thing is, to you in your own words, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? What do you think that means and entails? I think it involves compromise. Compromise? How so? Well, to, to be like the world. Okay. Know that it's Okay. Uh, we, we compromise and, and tolerate or, or espouse their belief system mm-hmm. for the sake of a benefit in our part. Okay. Then uh, maybe that's adultery. Okay, so adopting and espousing their beliefs, their views, and choosing to befriend them as opposed to befriending God, if you will. You know, not to hold to the line of Scripture mm-hmm. uh, and to know that and then to... No. Okay. Anybody else? What does it mean to you to be a friend of the world? Any thoughts? I say, um, along the same lines, but um, kind of like, um, kind of like leaving God in the life, the life that He has planned for you, and the things that okay. He wants, like the way He wants you to live, and choosing to go your own way, and, and in essence, you know, like Satan's way. Okay, so choosing to go your own way or the way like the world would go ahead and steer one as opposed to the way God would have for you in your life. Okay, anybody else? Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it, it does appear that he does juxtapose being an enemy of, the, of God with being a friend of the world. So you do have that clear contrast as well. Let me ask you, for those that are your friends, people you consider friends, why did you choose them to be friends? What about them are you like, hey, I, I like that. They're going to be my friend. I know as grownups, we really don't talk like that anymore. But think about it. People you're close to, why are they your friend? Thoughts? Something in common, okay, common likes and dislikes, maybe, yeah, what else they like to go to coffee with me. they're easy to talk to, <laughs> yeah, 
They're, they're fun, okay. Similar approach to work ethic. Like at, at work, you okay. take towards people that will work like you do and maybe okay. the same manner you support each other well, so you just, it kind of evolves into a friendship. Okay, so similar work quality, work ethics, similar value. No. Yeah. Thinking the same yeah, type deal. The same lines, okay. All right. All my friends are Christians. I have a few that are not Christians, but yeah. them are Christians. Okay. So is that why you choose them as friends? Because they're Christian? Well, those are the people I seem to gravitate right? Okay. What about those ones that aren't Christians? Well, I, I don't know very many of them. Okay. Right. I like what Brother Ojo says, our missionary to Nigeria, who's like, if I'm, be, if I'm trying to be your friend, it's only because I want to tell you about Jesus. You know, I think it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of neat. But if you think about, okay, like when I want to be some, someone to be my friend, you sort of gravitate towards them. They have similar minds, similar ethics, things like that. And if we take that mindset on how we become friends with other people, could we look at the fact that James is calling these people out for the same thing that these Christians are like, hey, I'm being a friend of the world. We have a similar mindset, a similar ethic. Hey, I, I just, they're fun. You know, can we sort of see a similar parallel between being a friend of a person and a friend of the world in this regard? Or am I a little off base in that? Okay. So how would be being a friend with the world be committing spiritual adultery? I mean, I don't want to do all the talking. If we agree with the non-Christian friend, if we do what they're doing, mm-hmm. that would be adultery. So what is adultery? Well, normally I think of it as being sexual. Okay, so there's a, a sexual connotation, but in the Old Testament we see that God regularly cause Israelites out for committing adultery. And, and so there's more of a figurative sense in that regard. And so that's what this is about, I okay. Bill? Well, uh, adultery involves betrayal. Betrayal? Definitely see that aspect of betrayal. Anybody else? You see, when I look at being a friendship with the world, you know, looking at it from a human perspective and looking at it from uh, uh, that etymology, is we look at friendship as being a friend. There's an attachment to a person. Like we were talking about, we're connected with similar likes, dislikes, uh, similar views, ethics. Uh, there's a feeling of personal regard or preference. You know, and so we prefer somebody. Think about it. If you have a friend, you prefer that friend over, say, a stranger or someone that's not a friend. And so you're preferring them. Then when you look at the suffix S-H-I-P, ship, it simply means this quality or this state or condition of being. And so condition of being a friend. And so when we're looking at the fact on 
being a friend to the world, like I think what you were saying, Aaron, it makes me think of 1 John. 1 John 2.15, John wrote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And I look at the aspect of if he's sort of contrasting being a friend of the world as being at enmity with God or being an enemy with God, then in essence it looks like these early believers, they're preferring the world's ways, the world's systems, the world's values, the world's ethics, the world's pleasures over God. And so that's what I think he's talking about. So, I mean, you don't have to answer this out loud, but think, in your past, as a, as a Christian, could you say that you have committed spiritual adultery with God? Have you preferred, in some season of your Christian life, a particular sin or worldly value or a worldly preference over your relationship with God? I mean, I can think of times where I have preferred certain things in certain seasons of my life rather than God. Whether it was choosing sports over trying to go ahead and be at church, whether it's choosing to do my own thing and not being a part of prayer, not being a part of scripture, things of that nature. And sometimes these things are seasons. I'm not talking about a day, but sometimes we just get in, we get in a funk, you know? And then we just, we get pulled to the world because of the pleasures for a day. And then that day turns into a week, and that week turns into a month. The next thing you know, it's like, wow, <laughs> i got to dust this book off. I haven't opened it in a long time. And we chose the ways of the world over God. You see, if you answered honestly that as a Christian you have done that before, according to some theologies, you're not a Christian. This is what, and I don't want to keep... But when we get into the book of James, book of James is one of those books. If you want to know somebody's theology, there are certain passages you go to in the Bible to find out what somebody believes as far as salvation is concerned. And James is one of those books. This is from John MacArthur. And he says the book of James, in this particular passage, he has in view professing Christians, those that just say they're a Christian. But he says those with deep and intimate longing for things of the world, they give evidence that they are not redeemed. And so some theologies, if you and I admitted that there was a season in our Christian life where we chose the things of the world over the things of God, there are some theologies out there that would say that you and I weren't even saved at that point. And so it, it, it's, it's kind of scary because, number one, there's a bunch of subjective questions we have to ask. Number one, like we have here, you know, how long does this longing for the world, according to some theologies, have to last? Is it like a month worth? Is it six months worth? Does it matter if I had a tragedy in my life or if I just grew apathetic and fell out of my discipline of reading and prayer? And so what I see is a lot of times in certain theologies, instead of trying to disciple somebody and trying to reconcile them back into a good relationship with Christ— some theologies want to condemn people and say, you're not, not even a Christian at all. You need to get saved. And so rather than trying to fix the issue, they're trying to promote a theology that I would argue is not biblical. I want to introduce you to a person named Billy, Job, Billy Bob Joe Bob Bill. Okay? 
I named, I didn't name this person, my son named this person, right? This is one of the names Gage used a lot. So Gage, whenever he would come up with a fictitious name, he would always call him Billy Bob Joe Bob Bill. I want to paint this idea as far as committing adultery is concerned. Let's say Billy Bob Joe Bob Bill has no relationship whatsoever with Darlene. They don't like each other. He doesn't have anything to do with Darlene. How could Billy Bob Joe Bob Bill commit adultery against Darlene with whom he has no relationship with? It's impossible. Because to have a betrayal, like Bill said, to be unfaithful, which is what adultery is also talking about, you have to have a relationship. And unless you're a Christian, you don't have a relationship with God. And so James can't be talking to unbelievers and calling them adulterers or adulteresses because unbelievers don't have a relationship with Christ. He's got to be talking about Christians. And it's a very sad fact, but it is a very important fact to understand that, yes, Christians can be unfaithful to God. You and I can commit spiritual idolatry and adultery. And so what we're going to look at is, what does James say on how to get out of this? How do we get out of this aspect of that? So like I said, if unbelievers have no relationship, there's no way they can commit idolatry or adultery. We had talked about the fact that being an enemy of God is contrasted with friendship of the world. See, we can seek pleasure through the world or through God, but we can't seek pleasure through both. Who are you going to serve, God or mammon? You can't serve both masters. And so we're either going to be a friend of God or we're going to be a friend of the world. And whatever we're a friend of, we're naturally the opposite of the other. We're in opposition of the other. And that's what enmity means. It means to be opposed. It means to be opposing or at opposition with something. But here in the verse, it says in verse 5, it says, Do you think that Scripture saith in vain? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth us to envy. This is interesting. This one probably took me the longest to try to figure out what, what is going on here. What is being said? So normally when the Bible says, Scripture says, have you not read? It's referencing an Old Testament quote. There's no Old Testament quote that says this specifically. And so what most people believe is James is actually summing up what the Old Testament has to say about this. And if you remember last week, we spoke about the word lust. How the word lust in verse 1 and 3 were a particular Greek word. And in verse 2, lust was a completely different Greek word. So you have lust being used, but it's two different Greek words. Well, here in this particular verse, in verse number 5, in the King James, so we use the word. But again, it's a different Greek word, even than the other two that we've already seen in chapter 4. This lust simply means to desire, to crave, to have a longing for. Matter of fact, if you were to look in the concordance and you find out where this word is else used, you'll read that Paul uses it quite frequently when he talks about his desire to see somebody, his longing, his craving. This is a oftentimes used as a positive desire to see something or someone, at least that we see within Scripture. 
And so when we're going back to this passage, we're looking at the fact, okay, the spirit that dwells in us, lust, envy. Okay, so if we're looking at lust in the Greek, looks to long and craving for, envy simply can mean jealousy, jealously. And then when we look at the Hebrew names of God, one of the Hebrew names of God is Jehovah Kana, which means jealous God. God is referred to in the Hebrew as a jealous God numerous times in Scripture. And now when you think of that, a lot of times we think of the fact that jealousy is, is a negative connotation. It's a negative emotion, you know. Those jealous, you know, boyfriends and husbands, you know, all these other things. But if you really think about it, the one who took three nails for us in a crown of thorns, the one who created us and loves us so much, to me... I'm thankful that there's an air of jealousy when I'm running away from him because it means he cares. It means he loves me. It means he sees me going in a way in a direction that I shouldn't be going, and it hurts him. It bothers him. And so we see in Deuteronomy 4, we see, I think, also in Exodus and other Old Testament passages that God refers to himself with the Israelites as a jealous God. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so when we understand that aspect of it, we can see like a lot of scholars point out is what it seems that James is talking about here when you look at the original language is that the Holy Spirit or God jealously desires our obedience and love. That the Holy Spirit within us yearns for us jealously when we are going astray. When we are becoming friends with the world. And so when we're looking at this aspect, we can't help but think of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now when I think of the word grieving, I'm thinking of someone that, that is hurt. That someone that is emotionally hurt. They're grieving for something. That when you and I are out of the will of God, you and I are maybe going prodigal or you and I are committing some sort of spiritual figurative idolatry, that we are grieving God because we know the Holy Spirit would be the third person of the Trinity. And so that's what a lot of people believe that this particular verse is talking about, is that when we are becoming an enemy of God by being a friend of the world, that it grieves his heart, that he is still wanting to reach out to us, which is why... When we go back to the adulterers and adulteresses and in the aspect of theologies, would you rather have a God that condemns you because you slip up a time or two or a God that desires you even though you slip up a time or two? And that's where grace comes in. And I think that's why James brings up this aspect of grace. In verse 6, he says, But he giveth more grace. You see... None of us really deserve anything that God gives us. You know, is you and I that failed, is you and I that sinned, and you and I that can't free ourselves. But because of God's love, he sent his son to die for us. Because of God's love, he offers forgiveness when we still sin and commit idolatry and adultery against him. Because of his great love. However, that does not negate his righteousness 
it does not negate his holiness. Because when verse 6 says, he giveth more grace, it says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. That word resists is a military term. It doesn't just mean to be against. It means to be actively against. Sort of like in a battle. And so, if we are Christians, and we are in a season of life, and we are constantly living for the world, and we are being a friend of the world, and we are clearly at opposition with God, like Andy Stanley's church hosting this unconditional conference, if we're going to choose that and condone that, would be the same as condoning pedophilia, condoning, you know, uh, gangbangers or drug dealers. It's an orientation, it's a choice, it's a lifestyle that they're choosing. If we're condoning that, we're becoming a friend of the world, which is clearly at opposition with God and God's kingdom. And so with that, we're told that there may be times where God is actively against the Christian. First John talks about a sin that's unto death. So there's a possibility that a Christian may do so much damage to the kingdom of God to where God may call that person home. You saw it in the case of Sapphira and Ananias in Acts chapter 5. You've seen it once or twice else. So what I'm trying to just warn against is if we find ourselves in that state and we seem like, okay, we're living for the world but the world's way is not giving me happiness. It's not giving me peace. I'm just having more trouble and struggles in my life. God may be trying to reach you. One of the main questions that people ask with the Odyssey, if God is good, why is there so much suffering and problems in the world? Sometimes it's self-inflicted. And sometimes it's God trying to reach us and discipline us. And so all I'm saying is if we find ourselves in these seasons of life where we're choosing the world over God, then we need to find a way to get out of that quick. And that's why I'm thankful for these next few verses. We read through 7 through 10 where James writes, he says, Smit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. You see, I'm thankful. You see, James just got done telling these people, you don't have what you want because number one, you're not asking. Number two, you're asking for the wrong reasons because you just want to consume it on your own lust for your own selfish desires. Then he says, you're committing adultery to God, the God that died for you and loves you so much. But he says, but there's a way to get right with God again. There's a way to come back. And this is what I believe these passages are talking about, these verses. He says here in verse number 7, Smit yourselves therefore. Again, therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, what he just got done talking about, now he's going to tell us, How do we get reconciled back to God? If we lost this fellowship, if we're no longer abiding in God, and we're now abiding in the world, how do we get back into a right relationship with God as a Christian? How do we fix that broken family relationship? 
Why he says numerous things. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, and humble yourselves. And all this goes back to the fact in the just previous verse, he said, God will lift up the humble. He will give grace to those that humble themselves. So I want to look at these. If we find ourselves in this position, he says, submit to God. Submit. A lot of people within the free grace theology don't like the term Jesus, Lord of your life, because a lot of time when people say that, that they mean if you want to be saved, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. And so they try to say, if he's not Lord of your life, he's not Lord of all. And so you're not a Christian. But that's not, obviously that's not the salvation message, but Jesus being Lord of our life is not a bad thing. Jesus should be Lord of our life. Jesus should not be the co-pilot. Jesus should be the pilot, okay? We should be in the passenger seat. You know, say, okay, Jesus, where are we going? How are we getting there? And what do you want me to do when we get there? Jesus should be the Lord of our life. The word submission is a, another term of authority. Is to put yourself underneath something or someone in a hierarchy. I was in the military for 20 years. There's been plenty of times I've had to put myself under the position of leadership. I was just about to retire in about 19 years. All of a sudden, we got a brand new second lieutenant at my unit. Brand new, what behind the ears, you know, just joined. I'm a 19-year-old, crusty senior NCO. Guess who was the boss? My lieutenant. I was in 19 years, she was in 19 days. I had to submit myself underneath her because of the authority, the rank structure, you know. She was a great lieutenant. I trained her a lot, mold, helped mold her. She turned out to be a great captain. She's a captain now and, and married. And so, great. But this is what this submission means, is to put ourself under God. This doesn't happen by osmosis. This happens actively and intentionally. We can jockey for position all day long, but we're not going to win. We're not going to win. And so if we find ourselves in this position, the first thing I would say is we need to actively and intentionally submit ourself and our will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Say, God, put me where I need to be. Give me wisdom. Tell me how to change. And just submit. You see, not only that, he says, resist the devil. Submit to God, resist the devil. This is interesting. This is not the same resist word, the same Greek word that was used where it says God resists the proud. Where it said God resists the proud, it was a military term saying to be actively against. This is not what that's talking about. This resist is a different Greek word which means to stand firm, to stand against. You see, it always fascinates me when I read the book of Jude, and Jude writes about Michael the archangel and Satan arguing about the body of Moses. Michael the archangel, one of the chief angels, dared not to bring a railing accusation against Satan, but what did he say? The Lord rebuke you. We're not told to actively go to war with Satan or any spiritual enemy. We're told to Stand. See, when we look in Ephesians chapter 6, key passage when we're looking at the armor of God, we're told to stand in the evil day. 
when Peter talks about First Peter chapter five, eight, nine, he says, talking about the devil, you know, seeking people, he says, resist in the faith. Stand in the faith. So when it comes to resisting the devil, we're simply to stand in our trust and our conviction in the strength of Christ. I'm all about absolutes. James says, resist the devil, he will flee from you. It doesn't say he may, it doesn't say he should. James says, you resist the devil, he will flee from you. What does that mean? That means if we're still struggling, then he's still there. And we still got to stand. Can't give an inch. The longer we stay, I believe, shows the strength of our faith and our conviction and trust in God and the power of the Spirit in us. So if you and I are going through struggles and it seems like we just can't, we can't get things right, it seems like these things are spiritual attacks, we just need to keep standing, doing what's right, submit to God, go back to God, get under his authority, and keep standing firm. You see, when James says resist the devil, in this context, you know, we, we know this verse, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. We know that verse. It's one of the proof text verses. But in its context, James is talking to people choosing the world's systems. Choosing to be a friend of the world. Which tells me, if James chose to use that verse, resist the devil, in the context of being a friend with the world, tells me that there's an aspect of spiritual warfare going on. That to resist the devil, it's because you're being a friend of the world, it's probably because there's a spiritual attack going on. Maybe Satan's dangling the carrot in front of you, whatever the case is. We can't be ignorant of the fact that spiritual warfare is all around us. You see, David Guzik writes, and I believe he's talking about the shepherd of Hermas, but he says a famous ancient Christian writer named Hermas wrote, the devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he cannot pin him. And I love that. I love that. Because if, if we have the spirit that dwells within us, verse number six, or verse number five, if we have the power that we can tap into to continue to stand in the evil day, Satan cannot win. You see, all these lights connected to the light switch, right? I don't know anything about electrical. All I know is that there's wires that connect from the light switch to the actual lights themselves. Electricity is running off through there. Now, when I came in, the lights were off. I could yell at the light switch. I can flick the light switch. I can pet the light switch. The lights won't ever come on. I have to actively and intentionally flip the switch for it to come on. That power is there the entire time. I just have to know how to tap into it, how to use that power. If you and I are Christians, we got the power of the Holy Spirit within us to resist, to stand, to overcome. The problem is, do we know how to tap into that power? That's where, again, I believe it goes back to submission. 
Not only that, James goes on to say, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Personally, I wish James says, God will draw near to you. You know? I wish James would say, okay, if you're in this situation, it's okay, God's going to draw near to you. But because he just got done speaking about the arrogant, pride says, God, you come. Humility says, God, I'll come. It goes right back to submission. You see, God seeks us. God will not force us. So when James is saying, if we find ourselves choosing the world, and we're struggling, we submit, spiritual battle, fight, we have to draw near to him. How do we do that? So we can talk about prayer, we can talk about reading, studying, Christian, you know, friendships. But I think the first thing he has in mind right here is cleanse your hands. Again, context. They're having friendship with the world. They're in opposition to God. They're choosing the world's systems, ways, ethics, morals, pleasures over God. First way we can draw near to God when we're living in sin is to cleanse our hands. Or in other words, we need to go ahead and stop doing what we know we shouldn't be doing. You get rid of the filth that we're carrying and we're doing around. Not only that, we need to purify our hearts. We need to seek forgiveness. First John chapter one verse nine: God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, and then he sums it all up right here and humble yourselves. This can only happen through humility. And so when we're out there, and, or maybe we know people that are out there that are Christians, loved ones, or maybe we find ourselves in this season of life where we would rather just be a friend of the world and not even pay attention to God, you realize the only way back is through humility. Because arrogance will keep us right there. And unless we know the problem that we're struggling with, and how far it has taken us in this situation, there's very little hope in returning into a good relationship back with God. And so it all comes through humility. See, this was one of the shortest ones that we've done, but I want to do a couple of takeaways. I want to talk about the moon for a little bit, okay? Talk about the moon. What we see in this passage here is the fact that as we, we read, professing Christians' love of the world doesn't reveal he's not saved, but he needs to repent. That's another word within free grace. You know, a lot of free grace people don't like the word repent. You know, if you start talking to a lot of different free grace people, there's some people within the free grace camp that will stop talking to you if you say a Christian needs to repent. I think it's nonsensical. But they will because repentance typically carries a, a uh, sort of like a Calvinistic understanding. But from when I study Scripture, when I see the concept of repentance, not necessarily just the changing of the mind, which leads to eternal life, but the actual turning from sin, I see it in context to the believer that the Christian has to turn from sin to get right with God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's what James says here in the verse. And so sometimes as Christians, 
when we're in these seasons of life, or if you know someone that's in the season of life, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not a Christian. It means they need to repent. It means they need to turn around from what they're doing and do what's right. Not only that, Christians' desire for the world may be because of spiritual adversaries. Why else would James say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you? In context, he's talking about being in love with the world. What did the devil do with Jesus during the days of temptation? He tempted him. That was a spiritual attack. If he did that to Jesus, why would he not even try to do it to you and I? So a lot of times, maybe the devil's like, see all these kingdoms? I'll give it all to you if you worship me. Maybe he doesn't say it to us quite like that, but maybe the, work, the job opportunity comes along or a connection comes along. And we're like, oh man, I can, I can invest 80 hours in the work week and I can be a multi-millionaire. Yeah, I have faith. I, I can just leave that in the back burner. I give you all these kingdoms if you worship me. Sometimes these things are spiritual battles and they're attacks from the adversary. That's why James is putting in here to resist the devil. And if we find ourselves, if all of a sudden we feel the conviction, all of a sudden a light bulb comes on and it's like, wow, why do I have so much dust on my Bible? Or, wow, I haven't even thought of God or talked to anybody about God. I haven't been to church in, a, in like three months, four months. If we find ourselves in that position, we have got to recognize that state. We have to immediately humble ourselves. We have to immediately draw to God, us actively, intentionally, And not only that, we need to submit. We need to submit to God. We should submit to him every single day. But we get caught up in our life and in our busyness that a lot of times we make really big decisions because we just make the decisions on the whim or we ask other people, what what do we do as far as this decision? And we don't go to God. God, this seems like a very logical thing for me to do. I can go over here and make a lot more money. But instead of asking God and, and we do it, we find out, I never should have done that. Now, if I would have asked God for wisdom and discernment, maybe God would have said, not, not, not right now. I don't want you over there. You can make a lot more money, but I don't want you to do that right now. I need you here for this particular reason. You see, we've got to recognize these things. Because if we don't, we might be fighting against God. And that's the one battle we don't want to be in. Jacob wrestled with the angel. How long did he wrestle? Did he win? No. Did he carry a limp the rest of his life? Yeah. You see, that wrestling was because he loved. And God's wrestling with us in those time periods and seasons of our life is because of love. If you have a child and the child's gone prodigal and not living right, you don't cast him out of the family and kick him out and ignore him. Every measure of discipline you try to do, I imagine you do it because of love. Even if it gets to the point of shunning them, you're probably doing it because of love and trying to bring them back and rehabilitate them to reconcile that estranged relationship. And that's the same thing with God. But too many times we want to talk about the love, grace, mercy of God, but we also forget his holiness and his righteousness as well. And we trample on it. And that's how we get churches that are hosting unconditional conferences as well. 
You see, I have this telescope at the house. Granted, it's collected a lot of dust, but it's a Celestron Nexstar 4SE uh, motorized telescope. It's a four-inch lens, four-inch aperture. It's got about a library of over a thousand uh, deep space objects in it. If you can triangulate it with three different stars in the sky, you could just go through the library and click on what you want to see, and it'll automatically go to it. Uh, I think it also has automatic tracking because the rotation, the stars obviously seem to move, so you have to constantly move the telescope, and it has automatic tracking features, so it does that for, for yourself. I love telescopes. My family loves telescopes. The first time we ever saw Saturn through a telescope, that was awesome. How many people have ever seen Saturn in a telescope? Can I get an amen on that? That's pretty, isn't it? You know, you just see nothing but a dark pitch black sky, and all you see is this yellow gem, bright yellow gem in the sky. With this telescope, no matter how far it is, we could see a couple of the ice rings around Saturn. It was a marvel. But one of my favorite things to look at is the moon. Not the full moon. If you try to look at the full moon without a lens filter on your telescope, you'll go blind. It is bright. But our telescope, like on the top left, it can get that close looking at the moon. You can look at craters inside of craters inside of craters. It is fascinating. It honestly looks better than that. Some of the best times to look at the moon is when you have this shadow. This shadow is called the terminator line because this, the light terminates there. And when you're looking at that, you can really get the idea of how spherical it is. It's just pretty to look at. You can see Tycho's Crater, which is, uh, I think it's this big one with all the lines shooting out of it. You can see the Sea of Tranquility, where the astronauts landed, unless you believe they landed in, in Nevada. Uh, but it's pretty. But you see, realize this, the moon has no light of itself. I'm sure a lot of us know that. The moon, it, it is not a light-bearing object. The only way the moon reflects light is by being in the right position of the sun. And so the light we're actually seeing from the moon is because the moon is reflecting the light from the sun that's shining on it. Which makes me think of lunar eclipses. They're pretty neat, you know. You can see the moon, you can see uh, the shadow coming and then completely covering the moon. So what happens during a lunar eclipse? During a lunar eclipse... The earth comes between the sun and the moon. And so the light that would normally come off of the moon from the sun, the earth is blocking it. So there's nothing but a dark shadow now. You, you can't even see the moon, except a little tiny, little tiny light that's around the edges. But it's because the earth has gotten in between the sun and the moon. And therefore it can't reflect the light. You and I have no innate ability of our own to reflect the light of Christ. The only way you and I can reflect the light of Christ is if we abide with Christ. And if we live for Christ, and we submit to Christ, and if we follow Christ, 
In other words, we have to be in a proper relationship with Christ to reflect the light of Christ. And when we get the world in our way, our ability to shine the light of Christ gets dimmer by the minute. There's no way that the world can see any reflection of Jesus in us. So if you and I are called to be sought in light of the earth, the moment the world gets between you, you and God is the moment we just extinguished our candle. And so with tonight, I would just encourage all of us, if we find ourselves in this position, and maybe it's a hard lesson where we're literally considered spiritual adulterers to God because we have befriended the world and become opposition with God. May we remember that the world needs to see our light. And the longer that world is between us and God, is the longer we can't be used, we can't serve, we can't show anybody what Jesus looks like. And we look like everybody else. And so, I would just encourage all of us, we find ourselves in that, to just consider that. So, amen. So, it is close word of prayer. I said, I'm done 10 minutes early. So, when I'm back, we're, we're done early. But, uh, so I just pray. God, thank you for just this message. And it was a shorter one. But for me, it hit a little closer to home. And Lord, forgive us when we have chosen the things of the world and in preference of things of you. And I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and the fact that you want us to return back to you and draw back to you. So Lord, give us wisdom and recognition to know when we've been in this position. Give us the ability through the Spirit to humble ourselves, to draw near to you, to resist the devil, and to submit and make Jesus Lord of our life again. So we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So...